There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everywhere we go, people want to know. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So who are you and where do you come from? I am Katie and I come from Rohini. Katie. It's a long time coming. I think this is probably the longest time coming out of all the podcasts. Because I did reach out to you very early on. Um, I think after Louise's story and someone said to me, what about Katie Keys? And I was like, yeah, but I don't know whether she'll sit down with me or not. Um, and that is because of your daughter, April. Yeah. So before we start talking about April, you and Graham, how long are you together? Uh, ten and a half years. Where'd you meet? <laughs> in an apartment in Clown Griffin. <laughs> like an after party? He was my neighbour. Stop. I swear to God, he lived upstairs. So long story short, he lived upstairs and he helped us carry our stuff upstairs. And then we had housewarming drinks with him and then it all just went from there. <laughs> was yeah. it love at first sight? Oh yeah, we were mad about each other. The first time I seen him, I actually um, tried to set him up with my friend and then... <laughs> Why? I wasn't into him. And then um, the next time, the second time, I was like, oh, actually, no, I think I fancy him. Stop. <laughs> I swear. And then we had, we put a bet on me and my friend to see who could kiss him first. <laughs> I won. <laughs> I swear to God. Yeah, yeah. 2010. Christmas 2010, that was. And then um, tell me then, let's, we'll just go straight into it. Um, when did you find out you're pregnant and tell me about that? Yeah, so it wasn't long after. Well, I was 20. It was um, 2012, March, the 15th of March, 2012. I remember it was a couple of days before Mother's Day because he bought me a frame to put my little scan in and everything. Oh. Um, and it was actually funny because we had had an argument the night before. I found out I had no idea that I was going to be pregnant or anything like it. And... I woke up the next morning and I got sick and I was like, I don't get sick. Why, why would I get sick? And then I thought, I'm doing my period a week ago. And then I went down to the chemist, bought the cheapest pregnancy test I could find because yeah. I wasn't working at the time. He wasn't working at the time and we would have been broke. Like, so yeah. I went up, I bought a two year old pregnancy test and it said positive. And I was like, nah, that's because it's cheap. I'll go and get an expensive <laughs> And then, yeah, I was. So I actually was afraid to ring him because we were after having an argument. So I got my brother to ring his house phone and to pretend to be one of his friends and uh, ask for ask his mom, was he there? And then I got on the phone and told him we needed to come down quick. How old are you? I was 20. He was 24. OK, so now I get it. I was like, how old are you doing all that? I know, yeah. carry on. Yeah. I was only a baby. And when he came down, what did you say? 
I think I actually told him on the phone before we left, yeah, so that you drive quicker. Because okay. <laughs> his mom and dad live in Loud, so he was living in Loud at the time. So um, he flew down anyway, and I was after ringing my mom in the meantime, being like, what do I do? Because I didn't even know what to do. So she said, yeah. ring the GP. So off we went to the GP, and yeah, then he told me I was pregnant. <laughs> we went for a walk in St. Anne's and uh, sat down on a bench, and we were like, we're going to be parents. You know, it was just the weirdest thing. And but we were about really over the moon, delighted. Like it's, I know we were young and didn't even have a job between the two of us. Yeah. We were delighted. It was the middle of the recession. So, but we were over the moon. And did you know you were going to have a girl? Um, at first, I think I thought it was a boy. We, I think the two of us did. I don't know what it was. Graham's mad into football and everything. So we just imagined a boy and football and what have you. And I have two nephews. So that kind of, you know, we just thought that. And then um, we picked, we had like a boy's name and a girl's name. And then when I went to my 20 week scan, she had her legs crossed so we couldn't find out what she was. Oh my God. No, we didn't care. We left being like, okay, she's healthy. That's all right. It's healthy. That's all that matters. And then, um, then after that, we were like, okay, let's go pay for one of the, the scans to tell the sex. So yeah. yeah, then we found out she was a girl. And did you have April all along? Yeah. Yeah. So I had April and Bella. Bella is my Nana's name. And, uh, April was from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> And my little sisters, Lillian and Sarah, they were three and five at the time and they, they decided on April. Oh, God. Yeah. And come here. It was very, it was, the conversation we're going to have, I know it's a really tough conversation and this is why it's taken a long time for you to, to sit with me. And I actually couldn't believe that I got the text message off <laughs> you to say, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, so at what age do things start to change in April's life? Um, April was two. She was, it was two weeks before her third birthday, actually. Um, but she was kind of, she was sick on and off for a few weeks beforehand, but D-Day, as we call it, was two weeks before her third birthday. Um, are you both living together? Yeah, yeah. We um, moved in together when I was eight months pregnant. We'd lived together previous to that. And as I said, recession, jobs gone, everything. Um, We moved home and then we moved back in together. Then when I was eight months pregnant into uh, apartments in Clon Griffin. So, yeah, we were in our own little home from when the day she was born. Oh, God. Yeah. And then D-Day, what happens? So there was a long lead up to it. Um, she kind of hadn't been herself, you know, chest infections, this and that. And April was a very um, well child. She's always she's a good never, baby. Yeah, never been sick, barely cried, kind of just done everything a baby was meant to do, mm. <laughs> minus the crying. She was so good. And then she just said, kind of, yeah, getting sick. And even at that, like she was she was still happy and she was still getting up and doing everything normally, but she, you could see changes in her. And then one night she was sitting having her dinner and she fell off her chair and it was one of the small little kids, Ikea chairs, and she fell off and she sit, hit the side of her head and she got a little bruise on her eye. And then a couple of days later, that bruise moved to the other eye. And my mom just was in the canvas and said, listen, look at her eyes. Do you know, like, is that normal? And they said, yeah, it's actually normal for a bruise to travel if you've hurt one eye. So they said to her, um, really? Yeah, I never knew that either. But then I, then I was thinking, well, when someone breaks their nose or something, I suppose they get two black eyes or I don't know. Um, yeah. But they suggested to get an arnica for her to 
uh, lower the bruise. And so she was taking the little arnica tablets. Like I said, she was only two. There is, and she was allowed, the dosage was allowed for her just to <laughs> add that in there. Um, but then the bruising was going down, but was still there. So she had a little, um, a little lump on her jaw then. So just randomly. So we brought her to the doctor. The doctor said um, it was a wisdom tooth. Um, in a two-year-old sometimes they can come up early and so it was a wisdom tooth not to worry about it so that was grand um the bruising did start disappearing then and then she had a chest infection and they actually said that they couldn't hear a chest infection but they could hear the cough so they put her on antibiotics um and I actually that was only ever a second antibiotic she had one when she was like a couple of months old and after that that was her that was the next one um she took them for I think seven days and then wasn't gone and she just wasn't herself she was tripping up my mom actually blamed it on the Penny's Doc Martens that <laughs> and she brought her out to Clark's and Blanchardstown and bought her a new pair of Clark's runners uh, then because you do that you kind of go you're looking for the reason you're looking what's happening to yeah. something wrong and it is something stupid like you go it's them shoes it's them shoes yeah. get them off her feet I've done it with Aria a million times you're like get the shoes off her feet and your mum's like that's where her brain goes yeah um, you're just thinking of everything like my mum has eight kids you know we're all very lucky to have been healthy and well our whole life so you know she's looking for these little things at that time um, and she did April was after being in the GPs twice already and the DDOC actually won bank hol- the October bank holiday weekend and um, it was a Monday morning I went to college and my mum used my day for me so she was after bringing her out they had a great day whatever they were doing shopping and going here and there to the park or whatever and they went to McDonald's at the end of the day and she fell asleep at the table. My mom was like, Kate, when she brought her back, she was like, the Kate, that's just so weird. Now, I wasn't feeling well that day. So I said, maybe the two of us have something. And we fell asleep really early that night. Like it could have been half seven. We, we, she got into the bed with me and we turned on Coronation Street. April loved Coronation Street. <laughs> We'd have a cup of tea and biscuits and watch them. And... Uh, we fell asleep. I don't even remember falling asleep. Then Graham came in from work. He got in beside us. We woke up the next day and off she went with my mom. And I went to college. I had an exam in college that morning and Graham was in work. And my mom just brought, she brought her back down to the doctors. And the doctor said to her, listen, go to Temple Street because I don't know if nothing's changing here. Like, so I got a few messages in college and I, ha- I actually don't look, it didn't look at my phone at the time in college because my tutor didn't like when we done that. So um, I just, for some reason, looked at my phone and it was a message from Graham saying we have to go to Temple Street and I was literally walking into an exam and it just said to my tutor, I have to go. And I walked out and it was just, like, we've never been, to, we'd never been to Temple Street. I didn't even know where to park at Temple Street. So yeah. uh, we went and, and we did, her. did the doctor say that to go to Temple Street because they were... Look, the the chest infection wasn't clearing. The lump, the bruise wasn't clearing. It just the, the lump. I think she was most concerned about. Um, it was get, it was getting a little bit bigger. Um, I don't think we noticed maybe how big it was getting because we're feeling it every day. We're looking at it every day, you know. Mm. And it wasn't in a really noticeable bump at the time. Um, you'd really have to feel her jaw to kind of feel it. Mm. Uh, but it started to it started to be a little bit more noticeable that day when we went and brought her to Temple Street. It was like the lumps start growing more as we were there, and then her eyes started to swell, and then the bruising came back from the previous weeks, and her eyes throughout that day, like loads of things were changing. Um, 
we were in Temple Street for for the whole day anyway, but people were coming back and forth that no one really knew what it was. No one was given any indication or anything, you know, like we didn't have a clue. So April went for a nap on the bed and A&E. We were just sitting there and uh, I think Graham went around to spar and like we didn't, we just didn't think anything of it. We thought that we'd be going home, you know. Graham had actually said to her, we'll go and we'll get cinema food on the way home. We'll take the rest of the day, the day off work and we'll watch Paddington Um on the couch with a duvet and everything. And then they said to us at like seven o'clock, is it going to have to stay overnight? And we still did not have any idea what was happening. They took her bloods and they had said like the bloods aren't, the blood count isn't great. I think it was her white cells weren't well, or weren't high enough or something. And they told us we had to stay. So Graham went home and got a bag of stuff, brought it back. Um, we stayed and I remember she wasn't eating because the nurse came in, tried to give her a spaghetti because she hadn't had anything to eat that day, I don't think. And she wouldn't, like, she just didn't want anything. I didn't really tell many people that day. Like, you know, it was, we were just more concerned about getting April looked at at that point. We didn't tell anyone we were staying overnight or anything like that. We, the next morning, we, me and Graham, literally, we really thought that it was like a precaution thing that they were keeping us in, that there was nothing wrong, that she'd be sent home with antibiotics and she'd be fixed. You know, I think we were very naive or I, I don't even know if we were really naive. Just, you'd never think cancer like ever. And mm. um, Graham came back in after work then. He went into work at six in the morning and came over at eight when parents are allowed in. So he came over and we just kind of, I think we just went to the playroom for the morning and were pottering about. And then a doctor came down and said that she was going for an MRI and she couldn't eat and what have you. Then she said to us, you know what we're looking for? And we said, no. And she said, we're looking for a tumour. Now I, this was, I was like, oh, well, you're not going to find one. Like literally that was my response. You're not going to find one. I said, that's April. There's, there's nothing wrong with her. And even when she said tumour, I didn't I didn't think cancer even at that I was like oh well I don't know what she's looking for a tumor for because she doesn't have a tumor never mind even if she doesn't have a cancerous tumor you know yeah. like I just didn't I was in complete denial um so we went down and she had her scan and everything and that all happened so quick I remember bringing her down she was just getting sedated she wasn't getting put under general anesthetic and she I went in and I sang her to sleep she went off for the scan and me and Graham went to the canteen and I didn't, I still wasn't worried the way I should have been because I was in denial. I went in and we got something to eat and a woman Graham knew was there and she said to Graham, oh, why are you here? And he said, oh, April's having a scan. They're, they're looking for a tumour. And it was then that it kind of sunk into me. The, the woman's face dropped and she was like, oh, geez, please God, she'll be okay. And then I, I was like, and then you know it kind of set in for me then and went into a bit of a panic mode so um yeah so then after that (laughs) and did you just have a conversation then when the woman walked away were you and Graham like no no you just ate your food yeah yeah just in that moment we couldn't we we actually couldn't we couldn't even go like let our minds go there together because then it would just be a disaster. <laughs> and the two of us would be sitting there crying. And I had a taco. I still remember I had a taco shell and he had broccoli soup. And we just sat there at the food and went back up. And uh, my mom and my sister were across the road in Cavanagh's getting a cup of tea because they were waiting to come back over to us. And 
um, we went up when she was brought back and the doctor that had been down with us before was there and she brought us into an empty room on the ward. So like it's a, it's a room with three beds in it. So three families would usually be in it, but there was no one there. It was just us. And she brought us in with another nurse and sat us down and told us. Um, April was running around the room. I think she might have said, will we send her to the playroom? We said, no, 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 she's fine. And she was running around playing, not a bother on her. And she said, uh, we found a tumour in April's tummy and we believe it to be stage four or five cancer. And even at that, like I, I sat there, I was completely blank expression like I don't I, I wasn't believing what she was saying I wasn't hearing I didn't want to hear it so I I was kind of blocking it away from me and Graham was bawling crying I remember I'm nodding my head to the left here because he was sitting on the left of me I remember the room and everything and April looked at us she's like what's wrong with your eyes daddy and um yeah she kind of she was trying to explain to us we we didn't want to hear but we did want to hear so we asked like what can we do what do we do from here and she said I don't know if there's any treatment um if it's as advanced as we think it is there might not be any treatment but we need to get you to Crumlin to find out because they're the experts so we were like when can we go to Crumlin can we go now and we couldn't (laughs) there was no beds in Crumlin she said we're just gonna have to be patient she told us that we could go home if we wanted to or we could stay there and wait there. It could be a day or two. And if we went home, that they might kind of forget about us a little bit. So that she advised to stay there. So we did. But when she left the room, actually, my mom and my sister walked in and they knew. They knew straight away. Like we didn't have to say anything. We all just started crying, all of us. And it was horrific. And April was still as happy as Larry going around. Um, and that day was just insane so obviously me and Graham were after getting this news we didn't we didn't know what was in front of us we didn't know if there was anything in front of us we didn't know anything and people were just coming and going our family our friends we hadn't told anybody obviously before the scan that we were even in there and then we had to kind of ring people and text people I remember actually ringing my dad because he was in work and I could hear when I rang him that like there was stuff going on around him, you know, and he, he I, I said it to him, I, I can't even remember what he said back, but I remember the feeling that I felt having to ring somebody and telling them. And then Graham had to ring his dad, who was in England at the time. Graham's brothers live in London, so he was over with them and he had to ring and tell him from London. So that was, that was awful. And yeah, then everybody just started pouring in you know all of our family seeing everybody in those next couple of days um and april's just oblivious to everything totally people come in and going and yeah just come she's probably excited and delighted with herself seeing everybody yeah everybody and everyone's obviously bringing little gifts for her and everything she april she's spoiled rotten now but she wasn't back then we We've always been, well, back then we'd always been like, we worked to pay our rent and our bills and whatever was left for our Sunday day out. Like we, she never got weekly trips to Smith's like she does now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she was just delighted. And as I was saying on the first, our first day in Temple Street, it was like her tumors just start growing grow more and more in her face. Actually, sorry. I didn't know the church was in her face at that point, okay. but things were growing in her face and that day. 
But then by day three, well, we were still in Temple Street. They were getting more and more. So as we were there and everyone was coming in and seeing us and we were asking like, can we go to Crumlin? Can we go to Crumlin? And she's actually in front of us getting sicker. She was, you could see it in her. You could see the, her eyeballs were like being pushed out further and stuff like that. And that's when they they were telling us that there's tumours in her legs, in her face, in her neck, in her arms. The primary one was in her tummy and they needed, she needed to check what was in her bone marrow and in her bones and, and that could all be done in Crumlin. <laughs> um, we were getting very impatient in Temple Street about wanting to go to Crumlin. Uh, it, it was just, I, I actually didn't even know where Crumlin was. Mm. I didn't know where it was. Mm-hmm. I just knew it was a hospital for sick children. Um, and we went in and had a chat with a nurse and Graham got really upset. And I remember actually feeling so bad how upset he was because the nurse was then upset like the two of them were upset together he wasn't as given out for it they were just both so upset wanting to help April and I think she might have pushed for us that evening because at one o'clock in the night that night they sent us to Crumlin so it was pitch black middle of November I didn't have a clue where we were going we were in a taxi I remember going over the Liffey that's all I remember that I knew it was over the Liffey Um, we went into St. Anne's Ward. We just went into the reception and said, where's St. Anne's Ward? They pointed us down and they put us straight into a room and said somebody would be with us in the early in the morning. Can I ask you? Yeah. Did April go in the taxi witches? Yes. Okay, she did. She, did. Okay. Yeah. Um, she wasn't on any medicine or anything, so there was no need for an ambulance. So yeah, the three of us went in the taxi over to Crumlin. And it was so dark and daunting. It was actually so frightening because it was so unknown to us. Mm. Although Temple Street was new to us as well, it was closer to home. And, mm. you know, like I have family around that area and everything that I knew that I could just call or people could get to us easily. I just didn't know where we were. We didn't have a car with us. You know, we were mm. just in the middle of nowhere, we felt. And um, Graham actually walked outside in the middle of the night to look outside the hospital and like stroll around and see where we were. And although he knew where Crumlin was, he just didn't, wasn't aware of the hospital. So we woke up, well, we didn't go to sleep. Ava was asleep, we didn't go to sleep. And then really early, it could have been like seven o'clock in the morning, two doctors came in. That was Michael Capra and Noel Cunningham and... I'm saying her surname wrong. They were the two of the best doctors that could have possibly walked into the room. They came in and they were hugging us and they were holding our hands and we'd never met them before, but they just, they just, you know, they gave us that warm feeling. It was so nice. It was the the room that we were in leads out into playground and you could see it was cold and rainy and everything outside and we were in this yellow room that we didn't know and these two lovely people came into us and sat down and from the first word they said to us like they were reassuring us they were saying right so today we want to get April up to theatre we want to get April uh, Freddy into her chest and then they explained what that was that's a broviac a central line going into your chest going into your main artery in your heart we want to get a biopsy of her tumour in her belly and we want to get bilateral bone biopsy, bone marrow biopsy. So they'd go into um, the back of your hips to take out bone marrow to test that to see the, if there's cancer in the bone marrow. 
So all this was gibberish to us, of course, at the time, but we were like, okay, whatever you need to do to, to get her better. You know, we didn't, we still didn't know what she actually had, but they said to us, we have a feeling we know what it is, but we will wait until we do all this and then we'll tell you. Um, but they wanted to reassure us, let us know that they'd look after her and what have you. And they were really, really, really lovely. So. And were you re- reassured? Yes. Were you? Yeah, yeah. I really was. Uh, they were... They were just so calm and just so compassionate, which of course they were compassionate over in Temple Street, but they didn't know what they were dealing with. And they didn't know, they didn't know anything about this particular illness. So they couldn't tell us anything, you know, so for someone to be able to say, listen, we deal with cancer every single day and we will look after you. You know, it was, it was very um, reassuring. Now not, <laughs> they weren't promising us, anything so you know we were still on edge for the whole day we were pacing the hospital we were we were sitting in the parents room with all of our family around us and we couldn't even look at them we didn't want to speak to anybody you know there was so much going on that day and she was gone for hours upon hours it was so difficult she didn't get back until maybe half six seven o'clock in the evening so it was a long day and she went like just this innocent little two-year-old and came back with tubes and wires and stitches and everything everywhere, absolutely everywhere. So we, I didn't even know how to lift my child up. You know, I, I needed to change her clothes because as soon as she woke up, she drank a full carton of Ribena and got sick everywhere and I needed to get her clothes off and I didn't know how to because she had this new line in her chest that you need a certain vest to be able to put on with it and I just didn't know what to do. It was so difficult. I was very lucky to have the nurse that we had with us that day. Her name was Audrey. And I actually later found out that she is a friend's friend's wife, you know, like it's the small world thing coming around again. Um, But she was just an angel. She just done, she's done everything. She taught me how to do everything in, in those 24 hours that we had her as a nurse, you know, she was just amazing. Um, I definitely couldn't have gotten through that day. I don't think without somebody like her there with me to show me how to do these things. Um, and that weekend, that was a Friday and it was Friday the 13th. <laughs> I, I've had bad experiences on Friday the 13th before, but nothing like this. Um, it was so difficult. We were standing at the front of the ward, um, at the canteen and the bed came in and I, I wasn't actually expecting a down at that, that minute. And the bed came in and I was like, Oh my God, there's April. And then everybody that was there, all of our family and friends that were in the family room canteen thing jumped up and I didn't want anybody else to be there. Cause I could see there was so much going on around her and I just wanted it to be me, her and Graham and a nurse. And it was just, it was horrible. The nurse actually sent everybody away because they all followed the bed down to the room and stood at the door looking in and she just, she closed the curtains, opened the door and said, can everyone leave? <laughs> and that's what I needed her to do. And I didn't know I needed her to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did. We needed just privacy to be able to take that, that in. And like I said, learn how to do everything. Um, so that was really difficult. And that was a Friday night. And then we had to wait for the weekend till the Monday to actually find out what it was. So that night, a doctor, the two doctors actually did come into us and say everything went well. And um, we 
think it's neuroblastoma and we will have confirmation on Monday and then we can make a treatment plan. So we still didn't know what this was. He said, don't Google, don't be a Google doctor. We will tell you everything you need to know and any questions, write them down. When you see us next, ask us everything. So that's what we did. We didn't Google anything. We told obviously our family and friends what you'd said. Everybody else Googled it, of course. Mm. <laughs> but I didn't even know how to pronounce neuroblastoma. Like when I was saying it to people on the phone, I was saying, I don't know how to say it, but it's neuro something. <laughs> and Kate, uh, how old were you? 23. 23. Yeah. I was, uh, yeah, 23. Because <laughs> I remember hearing the news and it was when we heard, we were told, you know, that there's a little girl in, in, travel agency down the road <laughs> and her daughter's sick and like it, it was cause and they were like show me a young one show me a young one like you know what I mean and I was like like they were calling you the little girl do you yeah. know what I mean because in I think you were probably one of the youngest around in travel like you were, I was you know? the youngest in Sky Tours at the time mm, yeah mm. I started in Sky Tours when I was pregnant mm. so you know, I went for all my scans from work and everything. So like April was a part of Sky Tours, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I was only a baby. I was only a baby and I can't remember what age Graham was. I think he might have been 27 or something like that. Mm. <laughs> um, but we were young and but then again, I don't know if it matters what age you are. If this happens to you, it's horrific. You know, it's there's no right way of trying to deal with it. Um, that weekend was... So tough. We were just trying to to learn how to do everything. As I said, I've probably repeated that five times. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> she couldn't obviously walk or anything after having surgery on her tummy. And she couldn't sit up. Actually, the only thing that she wanted to do was sit on the bed and put her hands into buckets of water. So we had little buckets of water there and the three of us would sit there splashing in it and people would come to and from the hospital to see us throughout that weekend. I'd never seen so many people in my life. <laughs> um, you probably didn't want to see them. I don't even remember who was there. I, I remember some people that were there. I remember my mom was there because she brought over a Sunday dinner on the Sunday and my Nana was with her. So I remember that. And the, a few other people, I remember another part of my brother being there on the Saturday night because we had ordered chipper to the hospital. We'd realised we hadn't eaten in like three days, four days maybe. And we ordered chipper and then the chipper was on the way and I asked Graham, did he have money? And he said, no, I don't have money. I was like, I don't have money. Mm. You know, we, we lived from week to week and yeah. we, we weren't in work for the past four days. We didn't actually have any money. Yeah. So um, my brother was there, thankfully, and was able to buy the chipper for us. I actually had to text my dad that day and ask him to drop me up money so that we could eat for the next few days. But... Yeah, that weekend was a complete blur. It was rainy and wet outside. We sat there playing with bowls of water and watching Big Hero 6 on repeat and Frozen, I think, as well, all weekend. <laughs> but in some way, it was kind of it was kind of a warm, comfortable weekend. There wasn't anybody annoying April, like as in doctors and nurses sticking needles in. She had her IV access and they were just putting her medicine up onto it. She just needed painkillers at the time. So, And did you have a conversation with April? Like, I know she's two and she doesn't really understand an awful lot either, but God, I can't even, yeah, I'm trying to think of my nieces too. Uh, yeah, so they wouldn't even. They wouldn't understand. 
I don't think we did. I can't remember. Um, we told her she was sick, um, but I don't think we would have went into yeah. detail at yeah. that time. We did afterwards. Um, I think when we knew and we we knew what we were doing next, but at that initial time, no, we didn't. We didn't tell her. I don't think we just said that she was sick and she needed medicine and the doctors would help her. And she was very understanding. Um, the thing that she didn't like was needles. So besides the needles, she was so good for everything else. She was so, so good. And she just got on with it for the age of her. She could have kicked up a hell of a lot more tantrums than she did. Um, then one day came around and the doctors came into us. I actually forget who came into us, but I, I don't know if it was Dr. Capra or her oncologist now. Um, but the doctors came into us and they confirmed neuroblastoma and they said to us, it is treatable. They said it's incurable, but it's treatable and there's a good prognosis from it. So that was just like this big ray of life for us. So they told us we'd be moving to St. John's Ward in the next day or two and that we would start treatment and we'd look at treatment plans, etc. And that would all be discussed the next day. So on the Tuesday, when the oncologist that Ava was assigned to was in and we needed to give her a couple of days to recover from her surgery. So that night was the first night I went and had a sleep. I went up to the parents' accommodation upstairs and I slept and it was horrible because I cried going up the stairs and I was crying in the bed, so upset. But Graham sent me a picture of him in April and I actually cried then when I seen the picture because I could see her face was just grown and grown and you could see behind her eyeballs at this point, she was just so sick. The next morning, I remember my mom coming over. She drove to Crumlin through town and it was her first time driving over. Somebody drove her over every day beforehand. She was like, that was a disaster. I'm never coming at this time again. <laughs> she sat in traffic for like over two hours. She's like, I'll drive in the M50 or someone can give me a lift. <laughs> but she wanted to be there to support us. She had, she actually didn't really leave. She was there every single day, you know, Um and we were moved to St. John's Ward that day. So that was the 17th of November, which was actually my mom's childhood friend's son's anniversary who passed away from cancer when we were teenagers. So it was such a, it was David's anniversary and we were going to the ward that he was treated on. And I felt like David's looking down on us, you know, that's it's a natural instinct to think yeah. these things. And I was like, wow, I actually texted his mom that day and, and said, I told her obviously what was going on. And I said, like, you're such an admiration to me right now. Like you've always been amazing and what have you. And, um, that helped us. It definitely helped us. And we went down to St. John's Ward anyway, and it was, it was sad. Yes. We're going on to a ward with all kids with cancer, but it was so lovely. It was brand new. The ward had only been done up, I think, the year beforehand. So it was brand new. It wasn't like the rest of the hospital. So it was a little bit more welcoming. And you have like your own room and even the, like there's a lovely little couch in the room. You know, it just it just felt more welcoming. And although quiet and daunting and all the rest, Dr. Cormac Owens came into us when we got down. And that's April's oncologist now. He sat down and he he's very different to the 
other doctor, Dr. Kerfer. <laughs> he is more to the point and tells you how it is. And I think that's really good. You need both. You need mm. the mix of both. And I wouldn't change Cormac for the world and call him Cormac. I'm very, very comfortable <laughs> with him now. I should probably say Dr. Rounds. Um, but he sat down and he went to everything. So he's like a neuroblastoma expert in Ireland and the whole of the world. Actually, he does conferences everywhere. He's amazing. And he sat us down and told us everything. So he told us what neuroblastoma is and what is it? So neuroblastoma is a, it's a childhood cancer that you get before the age of five. Usually, um, it starts in your tummy as a tumor and it spreads. So it spreads absolutely everywhere everywhere so it's it's on your bones in your bones in your blood everywhere absolutely everywhere so he explained everything to us and he told us where april had it and everything she had it everywhere so over 80 percent of her body was covered in cancer of her tiny little body and we just that was so difficult to get your head around you know you're looking at your child your two-year-old and they're perfect here but Little did you know that over 80% of their body was covered in cancer. It was really difficult to comprehend. Um, but again, having a doctor there who knew about it was so reassuring. He told us what he can do next. So he gave us an option of going on to a treatment plan that they've been using for years and years and years or going on to a trial. And there's two options in the trial. He recommended to go with the trial, but it was up to us. We looked at both. He gave us information on both and we looked at both and we chose the trial. And the trial was very similar to the one that they've been doing for years, but it had a little bit extra in it. And the survival rate on the previous one wasn't great. So we said, what's the harm? It's a little bit extra in this one and it could be better for us. So we, we went with the trial and it's a randomized trial between an American trial or a European trial. I think we got the European one. I actually can't remember now. So much has happened since. Um, I think we got the European one and that was just over a year of treatment. So we had this list that he gave us and it literally was just a list of six different things that she needed to do. It sounds so easy saying it, but it wasn't. It really wasn't. Number one was... Um, introduction to chemotherapy so it was I think 10 rounds of chemo every 10 days and they were three days long so that we had to get through that we knew we had to get through that so we had to get through that then we'd go on to stem cell harvest, harvesting so they take her stem cells out and separate the healthy and the bad ones and freeze the healthy ones so that was our next bit that we had to do then she had to get the surgery <laughs> And get the tumour removed from her tummy. And then we needed to get to transplant. So that's, she was having a stem cell transplant. And that's where we used her good stem cells that they'd frozen. That's what we'd use them for. So you have seven days of an intense chemotherapy and it just knocks all of your blood, all your marrow out of you. And you get injected then with your healthy stem cells and then there's a recovery, a very long recovery after that. It's a hundred days. Um, so we had to get to that. And then we had to get to after the hundred days to radiotherapy. 
And then that was three weeks radiotherapy and after that into immunotherapy. So we just had these, you know, these bullet points that we had to tick off as we went along. Um, and it didn't seem that bad, you know, looking at it on paper, it really didn't. And we were like, right, we can do this. This is fine. You know, and everyone was like, everyone was rooting for her and yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> That's just crazy. I know. I know. And is it common? So they say it's not common. They say it's, it's a, it is a very rare cancer. Not many children in Ireland have it, but I met an awful lot of children who had it. I met an awful lot of families just over the internet in Ireland who had it. You know, you, you meet so many people along the way. So while it's a rare childhood cancer, a, a lot of kids are affected by it. Mm-hmm. And when you met other families on the ward and other parents in the ward, is there a knowing between you? Is there a look? Is there? Yes. Um, at the beginning, it was weird. I didn't know if I wanted to meet anybody else. I felt like I just wanted us to get through this and not 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 that not have to speak to anybody, but just get through it. And I. I didn't really have a reason for it. I just didn't want to speak to anyone. So I kind of kept my head down as did Graham. And then it was a couple of weeks in and like we were in hospital every single day, like every day we were staying over most nights and we pretty much lived there. So you do get to see people, you know, you walk by somebody in the kitchen or so you will start talking like and you make friends and I actually have some really good friends from hospital but it is an understanding you you kind of know what kids have what cancers as well um by little things like that they're in the same times as your child which means that if they're in for three days every 10 days they're probably on the same treatment as your child is on or you know a nurse might say oh there's a little girl with neuroblastoma down the hall and then you'll look for that little girl you know you'll keep an eye out for so yeah you you kind of pick up and then once you're in the playroom and you do start getting chatting you tell your story to the other parents and someone might have leukemia someone might you know there's so many different cancers there's sarcoma there was I'm trying to think of people who what cancers there was so many but leukemia and sarcoma and neuroblastoma and Wilms tumors, they were the most common that I came across. And three of them are the most rarest cancers. You know, it's it's mad. Um, but it's difficult making friends too, because children do pass away, you know. So that's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just took a second. But uh, when you say that about children passing away, uh, in your mind, or did those doctors uh, ever at any point, or did you ever ask, like, could April die? Or did you want to know? I never asked questions. Graham would sit there with lists and lists of questions. So I am positive he asked a thousand times <laughs> at the beginning. Um, it was more survival rate he would have asked because it's mm-hmm. a very a very big thing in childhood cancer where you see percentages and what have you, but it's actually, it's actually the treatment nearly that kills children more than the cancer itself because children's 
cancer treatments is actually adults' cancer treatment. But they get children actually get a lot more of it than cancer than sorry than adults do. And um, so Graham would have asked a lot of questions like that. We did have a really tough time when April was in stem cell transplant. She got pneumonia. Um, and she was brought up to ICU. She couldn't breathe on her own. So she was put into an induced coma and they did tell us to prepare ourselves. Um, but there was no chance I could have prepared myself at that point. <laughs> I, I didn't believe anything they were saying. I, I was just like, no, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. She's been grand till now, so she'll be fine. But that was my way of coping. I actually just sat in a room with her for the full week that she was asleep and didn't answer my phone, didn't look at messages, nothing. Like my mom was outside the hospital. You're not allowed into ICU. Um, only mom and dad are. So she was outside the hospital. I couldn't even grow. I couldn't grow. I just physically couldn't. Graham would grow to her and Graham would communicate with her. I just couldn't. So I kind of left all that to him and I actually never realized that I, I didn't realize for a very long time that um, there was a lot of things that I kind of left to him to communicate because I was too involved in what was happening in there, in the hospital all the time. I, I just needed to be there and I needed to know what was happening or I needed to be doing it. And to, like, there was a lot of things that I would have done in the hospital. <laughs> I didn't need to do like giving April's medicines to her tubes and stuff. Cause I knew how to do it. And I was just, I'm her mom. I want to do it, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, I probably went really off topic there. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and so you start the treatment plan at the beginning. So you start at number one. Mm-hmm. So she has to have her chemo. So, then for her to get through to that point where she has a pneumonia, was it, I'm not going to say an easy one, but what did she tick? Tick all the boxes. All the boxes. <laughs> you know? She did. She did. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't easy. She was very, very sick. I, she was getting sick on the couch every half an hour, on the bed every half an hour. Um, that's at home. Like when we got home, we nearly needed to just pack another bag to go straight back to hospital because she'd have a temperature almost every day. Uh, when, when you have cancer, you can't have a temperature. You have to go back into hospital. I don't actually know what adults, but with children, because they have the line in their chest, if that's infected, they'll get a temperature and that could kill them. So they need to go straight into hospital if they have an infection and be put onto IV antibiotics for 48 hours straight away, whether they actually do have an infection or not, because it just needs to be controlled, whatever it is. So yeah, we spent so much time back and forth. I could drive to Crumlin with my eyes closed now, <laughs> um, but she ticked all the boxes she needed to at scans. So although the journey up to there wasn't easy. She she did tick every medical box <laughs> in scans. Yeah. God. Yeah. That was difficult. <laughs> and then she has the operation to take the tumour away. And was yeah. that successful? That was successful. And um, they, the chemo had shrunk so much of the tumour that it was quite small when they went in to take it. And they... They said they're not allowed to say they got 100% of it. So they told us that they got 99.9% of it. So we were happy out with that. Um, and did I get the tumours in the face? Did I get them? The chemo got chemo rid of got all them. of them. Okay. So 
her introduction to chemo the first uh, couple of months that actually got rid of all of the cancer around her body except for her tumour it shrunk her tumour though so they were able to take that out surgically so at that point before we even gone into stem cell transplant she was you could possibly say cancer free but the kind of cancer that it is you don't you can't stop there you know you have to keep going and you you don't want to even say cancer free so um she was doing very well up to that point she was doing very well for the rest of the time after that like for the next year um because the 100 days because we spoke about it with, with the roach sisters Carla had to have a transplant transplant yes. and she had her 100 days as well mm-hmm. so the 100 days is that in hospital no the first they kind of try and keep it in for four weeks afterwards because four to six weeks they'll keep you in for as long as you need to you you could stay in for six months if you needed to you know so you do generally around six weeks for children april say for six and a half weeks because she had the pneumonia she was and she was very very sick and transplant very sick so she did need that full amount of time so she had six and a half weeks and then the rest of the 100 days you do at home so People are allowed into your house, like you can have visitors into your house and but you need to you need to be cautious about who you're letting into your house and make sure that people are washing their hands and stuff. But we couldn't go anywhere. So we went back and forth from hospital. Um, but other than that, it was just a walk down to Father Collins Park and back. You know, we didn't we couldn't do anything. And it, to be honest, it was actually fine because it was the summertime. We could sit on our balcony and if it wasn't too mad for doing anything at that time anyway she wasn't well so she she was happy we watched lots of movies and yeah she was she was fine and did you find that people rallied or did you want people to rally and then did you lose people yes was yes. It, that a big thing yeah a lot um at the beginning everybody is always there always and you so much appreciate them and I actually feel like I could have pushed people away a little bit. And I'm sure a lot of people were understanding about that. Definitely. Um, but there's just too much at once. But then when things quieten down, when things are actually really, really difficult. So let me just put transplant in there. At that time, I could have really done with people around me. People to say, I'll come over to Crumlin and we'll go for a walk for an hour. You know, because I, I was in that isolation room at April for that whole time as well. So it would have been really nice to have more people around at that time. Um, they do fade away a bit. No, don't get me wrong. If I wanted somebody there, they would be there, I'm sure. But I would be the type that didn't want to ask at that time. Now I'm a little bit more open about it and I know how to speak about my feelings. And But then I didn't. I just, if people didn't know that I wanted them there, I wouldn't ask. Mm-hmm. And you then in that isolation were her. You must have been completely demented. Like, I know you're sitting in front of me and you're like, I'm wrought iron. You know what I mean? And just, <laughs> I, I, I will not show any emotion and your lovely smile constantly. Um, but in those days, was that difficult? And then is there a strain early on at the, in the relationship or is it just, you're just surviving? You're just surviving. Mm. Um with Graham, at, when you're at the beginning, when you're at the diagnosis again, you know, you're, you're rock solid, you're 
right, what do we have to do to make this better? And we're the only two people who, although all of our family are going through this, we're the only two people who really are going through this because this is our child. And although we have compassion for everyone else, this is this is us in this. Um, we would be very supportive to each other at those points. Then when it comes to when things do get a little bit, as some people would think, easier, but they're not easier. Mm-hmm. Um, we would struggle. Oh God, God, yeah. Um, we probably broke up more times <laughs> during April's uh, cancer treatment than anything else. <laughs> it's very difficult. Everyone copes with things in different ways. And me and Graham are polar opposites of each other. You know, Graham loves people. Graham wants people around all the time. He's very social and loves to talk. He even loves to talk about April's illness, which I don't. I want to, you know, I want just the three of us to be at home all the time watching telly mm. <laughs> or on a plane going off somewhere. That's all I ever want. Um to just be the three of us. So we're very different in that aspect. So there was a lot of strain there on the relationship. Even even saying that the coping, the way of coping, I don't know if that's actually what would have caused strains on the relationship. It could have been anything because I'm sure everybody's relationship gets strained during that. Um, it's a very difficult time and you're coming and going. You don't see each other. You're doing one night on or one night off. You know, I actually would never leave the hospital. So I used to sleep upstairs in the hospital on my night off. Graham would go home like a normal person and have a normal sleep in his own bed. I didn't. I went upstairs and I paid for parents' accommodation because I couldn't leave. So we never really got to see each other or spend time with each other. And at that moment, it wasn't important to us, you know. And then when things get that little bit easier, you do realise, oh God, I really haven't even asked you how you are in the past six months. And that goes both ways. We'd both be very bad at that. Um, But we've gotten a lot better these days. (laughs) And then, and we'll come to that because there's a wedding and everything that we have to talk about. Um, So then... The hundred days pass now. Mm-hmm. So at what point are you seeing light at the end of the tunnel? And then what's the next steps and what, or what happens next? So we felt like from the very beginning, when we got the, the list of things we needed to do, we could see light because we thought, okay, one step at a time, there's light down there. So it's just like six bus stops until we get there. Mm. Um, after the hundred days, we I had to go straight into radiotherapy and it was actually a really upbeat time. It was back in the Euros in 2016. So like everybody was happy and it was a very hot summer, if I remember correctly. So like things were, you know, there was a happy feeling in the air. So we could see light, we could see things getting back to normal. April was getting so much better than what she had been the previous months. And radiotherapy didn't knock too much out of her. She was okay. Um, so... Yeah, we could see light there. And when she finished radiotherapy, it was actually like we were kind of sad leaving St. Luke's Hospital because they're really lovely over there, you know, and you get to know, obviously, all the healthcare staff and you grow bonds with them. So when we were leaving there, we knew that we were going on to the next stage, which was immunotherapy. And that was six months long. And we actually thought that that was going to be the easiest time. Mm. So we were in our heads thinking, planning all these holidays and we knew we were going to go to Paris at the end of the year and we were going to Lourdes and all in the September and we just had everything planned out and thinking that everything was going to be great. And it wasn't. The August came and April started immunotherapy and it was so difficult. It was 
so tough on her body. Um, what is it? Immunotherapy is, I, again, it's something that I can't fully remember. Yeah. Um, she had a pump put onto her for 10 days every I think 28 days. I think that's what it was. So she had to wear this like little handbag with a pump in it and it was pumping the medicine into her. So it's some sort of antibody that stops the cancer from growing back. So after you're after going through all the treatments and your body is clear, you're going through this therapy to stop from coming back. This was like a vaccine, mm-hmm. <laughs> a very long vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was so tough on her. You, she actually was on, I don't know if you've ever heard of Roaccutane um, yes. for skin, for adult yeah. acne. So it's an adult acne medicine, but it had to be taken with immunotherapy. There's a few medicines that you have to take alongside these cancer medicines. So they work or what have you. Was it? Anyone who has been on Roaccutane would tell you, you, your skin peels off, you are a lunatic, like you, your emotions are just all over the place. We could be in a shop and April would not be a whole child and she'd just knock everything off a shelf and then not even realise that she'd done it five minutes later. She was just an emotional wreck and didn't know why and it was, you couldn't control it, you know, when people would be looking at you being like, control your child can't you know you were like she's on this medication I don't know um so that was that was difficult for the first two months it got a bit easier for two months we actually did go to Paris then yeah. um and then the December came it was the week of Christmas and she just woke up one morning covered head to toe in this mad rash and I thought it was chicken pox so Ooh. cancer kids shouldn't get chicken box. Chicken box can be deadly for cancer okay. kids. So we brought her into the hospital straight into isolation, obviously. And we rang ahead and <laughs> organized all that. And then they were like, no, it's not chicken pox. So then they thought it was uh, the measles, then rubella and done the bloods, done tests on the skin, the whole lot. She was on uh, like five different antihistamines over three days. It was Christmas Eve and we still didn't know what it was, but it started to go down. And we were like, can we go home for Christmas? Oh my God, are we going to go home for Christmas? You know, and we did. We got home for Christmas. We didn't know what it was. She did. We didn't have a clue what it was. But that was her last immunotherapy that she actually finished that that week that she got that rash. And then she was finished treatment. So she just needed another round of scans. She needed her um, central line removed and she was free <laughs> so that then you go into every scans every three or six months or wh- whatever what does free really feel like it doesn't feel free yeah and it will never feel free mm. I don't think um we were told that April was 100% cancer free in the July and we celebrated it, but I I didn't really celebrate it personally. I didn't, um, I couldn't, I, I celebrated it with my family and friends. And, you know, I put a post on Instagram and Facebook and it was amazing, but I actually could never let it properly sink in because of the fear of what if, what if um, it's hard to celebrate wins. And I am the first person to tell you, celebrate your wins, celebrate them because it's, you know, they don't come all the time. And um, yeah, very difficult to to accept freedom <laughs> because as well, because we were given the 
100% cancer free news in the July, we still had another half of a year to go of treatment. So it was, it was difficult. Um, and that, and I used to feel really selfish in not celebrating it so much. And then that January, I actually did feel a bit freer then because I knew she was finished treatment. I knew she had her Barovia taken out of her chest. Um, So yeah, we did. We, we felt a lot freer from that January. Cause yeah, cause I don't like, I wonder like, or would people be like, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, she's getting great news and all. What's wrong with her? Yeah, that is a huge one. Mm. <laughs> even, even Graham would sometimes say to me, like, ah, oh, Katie, will you lighten up? This is brilliant. You know, <laughs> um, I always felt so selfish for it, but yeah, people would still, Still to this day, like you still have people being like, oh, look, she looks great. And why are you like that? You know, and it's like, well, she might look great. You know, you don't, you, nobody knows. Nobody will ever know what somebody else has gone through. So, you know, you would have a lot of that, a lot of speculation. And that's tough. That's actually very um, paranoid. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Very. God, I used to be afraid to walk into a shop years ago. You know, I, I was afraid of questions or people or anything, anything. All I ever done was write things on the internet because I couldn't say them out loud and I couldn't be faced with a question or anything. So even my family would get news through Instagram. Really? Yeah. I'd either write a general message and send it to everybody in my family or I'd write it on Instagram and say they're going to see it soon. I couldn't talk. I could not talk. That's your life. That's your child. You deal with it the way you want to deal with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nobody, until they walk in your shoes, don't comment. Yeah. You know what I mean? What was some of the worst things people have ever said to you? I kind of like now going... <laughs> Like me saying, did they say your child's going to, like, is that the, like, what's the worst thing? Like, was that really stupid of me to say? No, not at all. Oh, there's been some horrific things. Um, Oh, so many. Like, I can't actually, there's one, one that will always stick out to me. I met this new friend a couple of years ago and it was after April's first relapse. And another friend who actually introduced me to this person said to me, why does she want to be friends with you? Why is she setting her child up for that? Like your child is terribly ill. And I couldn't believe what I heard. And then I started thinking to myself, am I being selfish making friends for April because she's so sick and she's terribly ill and another child is going to be affected by this? And then... I don't know. I just, it took me a while to kind of process it and just get over it. I am over it now, but I'll never forget it. It hurts so much. April goes to school. She does things like other children do. You know, she has friends. And if the parents don't want them to be friends, their kids to be friends, that's up to them. But just don't let me know that, you know, just don't, don't say something like that to me because that's awful. Really fucking hurtful. Yeah, yeah. So there's been there's been lots of little things here and there, but that was just a big one. There's um no, I think I think that's actually the yeah, the main one. <laughs> and then you said there the relapse. So uh, and again, we hear uh, we hear this because you know, the trade is so small. The yeah. trade that we're in, it's so small and everyone knows everyone's business. Yep. <laughs> and it is it, we are and then 
it would be like, oh, she's doing well. And then, no, you know, that April's sick again. Yeah. So talk to me about that. So when do you like your freedom and then the relapse? So it was very soon after we got all clear to or the finish the end of treatment, we called it. End of treatment happened in the January. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And it was early in January, I think it was the 7th of January, she had her central line removed on, I think it was like the 1st of February then. And we thought, wow, okay, life is going to go back to normal now. I started to bring April back to school. To, she was in play school at the time. What was she then? Then she was four. Okay. So she was left to run for the previous November and... She started going back to play school, which she had actually only started the September before she was first diagnosed. So she had missed so much of this, but she took to it so well. Like she remembered her friends. Um, she was so happy to go back. Her teacher adored her, absolutely adored her. And she was delighted. And it was difficult for me. I found it really difficult. I hadn't gone back to work yet. So... I'd been off for all this time. April was starting to go back to school. Graham was working normally again. And I just did not to do it myself. I found it so difficult. I was so scared. And it had been Graham's 30th and I got him a trip to Vegas for his 30th. It was actually myself, him and Stephen and Vanessa going. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
we went over and we had a ball and we really needed it. Me and Graham hadn't spent any time together. We hadn't gone for a meal together, nothing in so long. And we just had so much fun. And we had booked a holiday village, a road, the Rhodes Holiday Village for the June to go with April. So we were like, this is our trip. And then we're going on this trip with April. We went all out and we got the swim up room two weeks. And we just, you know, we had all this plan for, for the start of that year. So me and Graham came back from Vegas. We had so much fun. April stayed with my mom for, we went for four days. She stayed with my mom. She was grand, not bothering her. She had a great time there. And we came home on a Monday and on the Wednesday morning, I was brushing her hair and I felt a lump on her head. So that was literally like not three months later, not even three months later. It was two months. It was like the 24th of March. And what does that feel like? Finding the lump. I, after I've been through it already, I actually went into denial mode again. Did you? Immediately. It was a lump behind her ear and she had had an ear infection a couple of weeks before that. So I didn't really think too much of it. I rang my GP, which I probably shouldn't have done. Um, but I rang my GP. It was lovely, by the way, like really, really lovely. And he said to me, go to Temple Street. <laughs> no, he said, go to hospital. And I said, what hospital should I go to? Because in my eyes, I didn't know if Ava was still under crumbling now or for like little emergencies, she goes to Temple Street because they're closer. So mm. I said, what one should I go to? And he said, Temple Street. And I was like, okay, Grant. So we went into Temple Street. And Graham said, Katie, we shouldn't have came here. Shouldn't have came here. This is the wrong place to be. And they, the first thing they done was put an IV antibiotic in for an ear infection thinking that it could possibly be that. And then told after she had the injection, told us to go home and to go back over to Crumlin the next day. So have you done that? And Dr. Owens came in and sat down and said, I do think it's a relapse, but I can't rule out an ear infection. Now, usually you'd say that the other way around, you know, if it was more than likely an ear infection. So, so we knew, we all knew um, she was tired again and you know just those couple of days she she disintegrated so he said we have to do a biopsy tomorrow and we'll do a scan next week so that was fine we came back in the next day for a biopsy and they just put a little needle in behind her ear under a general anesthetic and um took out a little biopsy of it and confirmed that yeah it was back that quickly so we knew ourselves before even speaking to our oncologist that that's bad news that's you don't relapse from neuroblastoma that quickly they usually give you a five-year gap afterwards if you haven't relapsed within the first five years after your treatment you're most likely going to be fine if you do relapse within the five years it's it's most likely going to be terminal so we we knew yeah we knew and before we even had to be told so we were brought into a room I remember it my friends came down and sat in the playroom with April because we didn't at this point we didn't want her to be there walking back into the hospital and driving back to Cumberland was it just this is normal this is what we're doing or it felt a bit normal for me it did I was definitely very anxious and you know, didn't want to be driving back over, uh, of course, but 
it felt normal to me. Graham, on the other hand, kept saying, if the next reg is this, this and this, it's bad news. And he's so superstitious. So like, even if he's seen a yellow reg, you'd be like, that's bad news. You know, silly little things like that, that mean things to him. He hadn't had his hair cut in a week and a half. And a haircut is a thing for him. So he's thinking, because I haven't had my hair cut, my hair was messy. It's bad news. So it's, it's. And people go there. They go yeah. there where, you know, as I said, it's it just how you react mm-hmm. to the situation and people go there and yeah. that's okay. And I feel like I, little things for me was, um, the night that April fell off the chair, at her first diagnosis I was going out that night. So I was going out to have a good time. And then on a relapse, I went away and I had a good time and she relapsed. You know, so I nearly told myself I'm not allowed to have a good time anymore. I'm not like, you do think, did I do something wrong for this? So at that point, yeah, I was thinking I'm not allowed to enjoy myself because when I enjoy myself, something bad happens. Okay. Not necessarily punished, but yeah. Okay. I just have to be a man. You know, I'm not allowed to be anything else. Mm. So you're in the room. What's that room look like then? Oh, we're in this. I've actually never been in this room before. We walk by it every single day in hospital because it's on the way to the reception to St. John's Ward. Never been in it before. Didn't even know what was behind the door. And we were sitting there with Cormac Owens and April's nurse, Jane. I think it was Jane. <laughs> and the box of tissues. I remember the box of tissues sitting there and I was like, I don't need them. I'm not going to cry. I probably cried two seconds in. I actually started to let emotions out then. Um, And they said to us, like, this is bad. Uh, Generally, when this happens, you would only have a few months left to live. Um, They said there is an option, but April's not strong enough. She's not even a year over her transplant. She wouldn't be strong enough to go in hell for leather for another round of treatment like we did last time. So they said, there's another thing we can do. We can give a oral chemotherapy that can prolong her life. So he said to us, if you if we don't do anything, she will most likely not make it until Christmas. And this was in the March. So... Obviously, for us, that wasn't an option. We're going to try. You know, you're going to try for your child. Um, to a certain extent, you know, you don't... April was after been through hell the year previous. So this oral chemotherapy they're talking about, we want to know everything about it and what it's going to do to her. So they said it will give her a good quality of life. Um, she should have three years of good life that we could... If they knew the doctor knew he knows how much we love to travel and that's all we that was always the next question to him they're like hey, can we go here can we go there can we have a letter for the airport and what have you so um he said you'll be allowed you know travel and do the things you want to do and like you won't need an internal line in her chest and because those a lot of those things stop you from doing things you know you can't get into swimming pools and you can't play with other kids the way a normal child would because they can knock it out of your chest and stuff like that so he said it'll give her a normal quality of life for about three years so we said right great that's what we'll do so we started that I think like the next day maybe it was and it was fine it was fine like it didn't really affect her in any way at all we done that for 
five days and then she'd take a 28 day break and start again. He did want to do radiotherapy on her head as well into the site. So we did do that that summer and the same amount of doses as the previous time. So she'd done 15 rounds and like she would have gotten it just behind her ear. So, you know, there's lots of side effects from radiotherapy. Um, one would be that it might affect the bone there that it could shrink and, you know, her ear might not grow the way the other ear is and it might touch a bit of her brain. So she might lose a little bit of function there or like it would affect her in later life and all these little things. And she was grand. Like she was just so well. Like they generally radiotherapy side effects don't actually happen till later in life, but she was so well during all this. And she was on it for, she was on that chemotherapy for two years and they were a great two years. You know, we really did make the most of, Everything, everything. <laughs> we literally were on a plane probably once a month going and doing something, just making memories all the time because we knew what was coming. So after 24 rounds of that, so we got to December 2018. Yeah, 2018. And you do have to stop that chemotherapy after a certain amount of time. The side effects of that can be leukemia. So you can't really add another cancer into a cancer, you know. So um, we had to stop that. That was difficult deciding to do that, but we had to. There was there wasn't really any other option. But she was so well. So all of her scans were clear. She was in great form. She was a normal child, you know. Like she was out playing on the street. We had just moved into our house. And she made friends after like two days <laughs> and she was out playing in the garden. I couldn't believe it. I remember sitting in my bedroom window, staring out, crying, be like, oh my God, she's just out there playing, like out there playing like a normal child. She was six, just gone six. So like, it was just so magical for me, you know, it was so amazing. And um, that year then, 2019 she was she wasn't on any treatment she had a scan every six months so she had two scans in between that time and she was like I said just a normal child she loved school she went to her summer camps we went on a ridiculous amount of holidays that year but she loved every second of that year like that year was amazing (laughs) everything about it we went um we went on holidays with my mom and my sisters. We went on holidays with our friends and their kids, which is something that you, you will, you do struggle to do when you have a sick child mm. because your child can't keep up with their children, but she could. So we mm. were so comfortable going on it and she was amazing. She had the best time and we went to Lapland even that year. And mm. um, that was so special for us. We went to Lapland on the 1st of December. It was April's birthday on the Friday, she had a party. She had another party the next day. <laughs> and then on the Sunday, we went to Lapland and we didn't tell the kids we were going. We right. booked it a couple of days beforehand on an agent's offer. And we'd wanted to go for so long and could never afford it. Still couldn't afford it. I took a credit union loan out and I didn't tell Graham. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't tell him for a couple of months. He murdered me. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we went and we just had such a good time. It wasn't, it was myself, Graham, April, my mom, and three of my sisters. So we just had the best time. That was, we came home on the 3rd of December. 
and April was in hospital on the 4th of December. She had x-rays and ultrasounds and seen a doctor, had her blood done and everything. She was absolutely fine. We went bowling afterwards. Um, just, yeah, normal life on the Friday. I think it was like the 6th of December and she had an earache. I actually rang in sick and work, which is something I actually really never did. did yeah. um, I know I was out sick for a long time, but I'd never ring in sick. So mm. I had to ring Fiona and tell her that April had an earache or no, toothache it was, sorry. And I had to bring her over to Crumlin because her dentist is actually in Crumlin as well in the hospital. So I brought her over and they took her to the it was decayed. That happens from chemo. You, your teeth break down. So she got her tooth taken out and he said, she'll have a headache for a couple of days. Just give her some calpol, what have you. So that was fine. And she did have a headache. So she was having headaches for a couple of days. I was giving her the calpol. And on the Wednesday, the following Wednesday, this is the 11th of December, she actually said to her teacher I'm not feeling well I have a headache can I go home so she came home and I was in work I was in work for the full day my auntie actually collected her and brought her home for me and I left work early I went over to Penny's and I bought her new fluffy Christmas uh, uh, bed covers and a onesie and everything went home wrapped her up um, changed the bed the whole lot and she stayed off the next day she said she still wasn't feeling well. And then on the Friday, she stayed off again. Now, she was absolutely fine. It was coming in waves. And I told her nurse about it and I told her about her tooth. And she was actually booked in to get um, caps put on her teeth. So, yeah. you know, we, we, there was explanations for everything. Mm. Um, the Friday, she was going to my mum's and she was actually staying at my mum's that night. We were doing the Chris, Kind- or Chris Kindle and work that mm. night and having a few drinks in the office. And then I was meeting Graham and my friends out in the reunion. And April was fine. Absolutely fine. She was going down to Mace with my sisters, like walking down to the shop to buy sweets during the day. And, you know, I was on FaceTime to her all day. Literally not about her. I actually had said halfway through the day, she was just chancing her arm, taking the day off school. There's nothing wrong yeah. with her. And um, we started our Chris Kindle and work, closed the office. We were sitting there having a few drinks and I was actually getting ready then to go out. And we were all having a great time. And my mom texted saying April's not feeling well. And then I was like, again, she said, yeah. And I really think she's not well. And I said, okay, did you give her a calipol? Um, Well, I sent Graham around and then literally it was, I don't even remember time frames or anything. It all just happened so quickly, but Ava rang me crying, which she doesn't do ever. And unless it's over like a PlayStation or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was saying, I'm not well. And I had, my head is sore. And then my mom started kind of getting panicked and April stopped talking. And Graham arrived at the house and there was a lot going on. And I'm just sitting there on the phone being like, what do I do? And then my mom's saying, we're ringing an ambulance. And I was like, what? what? And she can't feel the side of her body. Um, she's getting sick. She's unconscious. She's her eyes are going back and then Graham is like you know screaming April 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 and there was a lot going on I could hear my nana was there my sisters were there one of my brothers was there and I'm sitting in Talbot Street not knowing what to do like and I, it's so hard to even <laughs> to think about it um, I 
my mom had rang the ambulance and they said they were going to be a while, but to wait for them, because that's what an ambulance has to say. And I rang the Kovarik fire station and asked, did like, how long would they be? And they said, to be honest, it's definitely going to be over an hour. And I was saying, we can't wait that long. So I, I rang Graham back and I, I rang my mum back and I said, Graham's going to have to drive us over as you sit in the car with her or whatever. And she was saying, no, no, you can't. They told us to wait. But then she said, actually, no, we do need to go. Um, and then I rang my friend who was a paramedic and said, like, what would you do? And he said, you, you are meant to wait for the ambulance. And I said, but what would you do if it was your child? And he, was, he said, go, you know, the, He'll probably kill me for saying this. You won't mention his name. <laughs> yes, definitely against <laughs> medical advice. Um, but they got into the car, my mom, Graham and April, and they started driving. The traffic was mental. It was a Friday evening in December. You know, Christmas parties going on. It was just really bad traffic. They seen a police car, so the, Graham started flashing the police car down. And um, they stopped and they let my mom and April into the police car. And my mum was sitting in the back and uh, they flew over. They drove Oh my down. God, did she panic? Yeah. I was on the phone this whole time and I didn't, I was trying to get a taxi. I wasn't understanding. I, I just was not understanding. My mum had said to me, this is like a stroke. And I was saying, no, it's my eight-year-old is our seven-year-old is not having a stroke. I rang the hospital when they were on the way over and I said to the receptionist, my daughter's on her way over in a police car and they think she's having a stroke. I'll be over in a taxi shortly. And the receptionist even said to me, how old is she? And I said, seven. And she said, a stroke. And I said, I know, I know, I don't know what to do. And no, obviously I wasn't this calm. <laughs> I was probably screaming and shouting and crying and slobbering. But um, it's they got there anyway. They drove up the wrong side of the road. They were, you know, they, and Graham was right behind them the whole way. And I pulled up in a taxi. My taxi journey over was a disaster. Your man, I told him when I got into the taxi, what was going on? I said, my daughter's gone over to Crumlin. They think she's having a stroke. Can you get me there really quick? He was driving like a snail. And I kept saying, could you hurry up? There wasn't even traffic in front of him in the bus lane, you know? So I was like, could you hurry? And then he started telling me about his slim and moral journey. And I was like, is this fella for real? Started telling me about how much he's lost. And then I tried to just like distract him by saying something. And he had a Northern accent. And I said, oh, if my partner's dad is from Belfast. And, you know, I was trying, oh, what's his name? And then we said, it's all this. I was like, please just get me to the hospital. We pulled up outside the hospital and I hand him the 50 euro. I still, I still don't think I realized the, how bad this situation was. So we pulled up outside the hospital. I hand him the money and he's still trying to, you have to meet my mom, rips the taxi door open and is like, get in, get in, get in. And your man got a great tip that night <laughs> um, but I ran in and she had the oxygen on her mouth and uh, the mask and I was like she needs oxygen what, what's wrong and then the the doctor on call said ma'am please start hugging her this is very serious she is either having I think she said um, um in a reaction to an infection or she's having a stroke and I just I didn't know what I just started hugging her and you know her pajama she was in the onesie that I had bought her on the Wednesday and they were ripping it off her and 
they took her off. She's never been taken off that quickly from me. So she was just took off. And I literally walked outside that room and I was dressed like a lunatic in this sheer see-through black dress and a big pink fur coat. And I just screamed. Like I was just screaming and Graham held me and my mom stood there with like her hand on can't remember what was two of our shoulders or ground shoulders my shoulder, I just it was horrible and everybody was obviously just sitting there looking being like what do I do here what do, where do I look and then a little boy beside me got sick <laughs> and I was like okay he got sick on the ground I can move now <laughs> you know it gave me a, a reason to move but I went and I sat down and they were bringing her up to um to CT so they were doing a CT on her head to see what's anything going on in her head this part was awful. Um, they told me and Graham to go up and my mum had to wait downstairs. So we went up to CT, like we know this hospital inside out. So we went up to CT and I actually remember a cleaner being like, are you all right? Why it's up here? You know, and we we're like, oh, we just have to wait for someone. And um, we could hear laughing and chattering and everything in the CT room. Like we were just sitting outside. So we are like, oh, everything must be fine. She must be grand. Um, if they're all laughing and like, you could still hear the laughter when the door was opening from the CT room. And then, but the doctor's face was really serious. And I was just like, oh my God. I like, I, I'll never actually forget that because that was really hurtful in that moment. And I'd never have a bad thing to say about anybody in Temple Street or coming and nothing. But that was just like, oh my God, that was awful. But she came out and she sat down and she said, um, I actually can't remember what she said. She said that there was a bleed on a large bleed on her brain but Graham said does that mean she's brain dead about something that she said and she said possibly and I'll actually never ever forget that feeling it was I just felt like I'm never going to feel her hug again all I could think of was the hug that she gave me that morning before I left my mum's house when I was going to work and I remember hugging her that morning I got onto the bus and I usually get the train I got onto the bus and I got into work early and I went over to Penny's and I was looking for little Christmas things for her and I was like why didn't I hug her for longer and get the next bus I you know all these things were going through my head it was it was awful all I could think of was that I was never going to feel her hug again and we were in an awful like I, I can't even explain it was just awful and the the corridor was dark and it like it was nighttime and the doctor said to us I'm going to send these CT scan pictures over to Temple Street there's a neurosurgeon over there I want to get his opinion and I'll be back to you shortly so she said I'm going to bring her up to ICU and put her on ventilation and then I'll come in and chat to you. So go up to ICU. So we went up to ICU and we weren't allowed into her. So when they get put on ventilation and everything, you're not allowed to see them. So we went into the family room and all of our family arrived. Um, our brothers and sisters and mums and dads. And um, we sat there for what felt like forever, like forever. I actually knew my friends were sitting outside in the car. My friends that was meant to go and meet that night for our Christmas night out they were all sitting outside and it just went on for so long we could, could have been a half an hour but it felt like about four hours and she came into us and she said the doctor she said we're going to move her over to Temple Street the neurosurgeon over there said he'll try and operate 
So that was this massive, you know, beam of light that we didn't have an hour ago. Um, and the, it, that took ages. Um, an ambulance took ages to come over. Everything took ages. But they let us go in to see her. They had ventilated her and they said, do you want to come in and say goodbye to her before she goes? Because obviously there was a chance that she would make it through that surgery. So we went in and we brought our mums and dads in. They, they allowed us, which... I actually don't think I realised at the time that that was, you know, they would never let you bring anybody in. So um, they brought us in and we just gave Could her Could you touch her or anything? I could touch her. She was covered in everything. She had, you know, she was incubated and it, we could touch her and I was able to give her a kiss on the head and um, they took her off and we actually walked down behind her to the ambulance and my brother-in-law who was there said, I know that paramedic and... Um, she texts someone said like we'll look after her and you know and we drove behind the ambulance over but the ambulance took off and yeah. you know we, we couldn't keep up and we got to the hospital and she was gone up already um we just even wanted to see her going through the doors you know um we got there we walked up the lane in temple street and graham's friend Stephen was standing there and he was like i just seen her i just seen her she's gone in and you know and we were like oh like we were in a state so myself and Graham went up to where we were told to go it was upstairs somewhere into a room and they somebody came into us and said um she's in surgery now and we'll look after her we'll come and update you in a couple of hours so we went downstairs because our friends were after following over to there so we went down we were standing in the lane talked to well we weren't talking you know we were standing there people were talking we couldn't speak we couldn't do anything um we told everybody to go home like it was the middle of the night you know it was probably like one or two in the morning and we said go home we'll text you we'll ring you and send everybody home and we went back up to that parents it's a parents room in ICU we went back up there and it was a horrible room it's so dark. it's so lovely to have it there to make tea and coffee and stuff but it's dark and it's got cold leather couches and you know it's just not inviting and we were so frightened I sat down on a couch and I put a blanket over my head I didn't want to see you know I just wanted to just be hidden until somebody came and told me something so somebody did come in the middle of it all one of the neurosurgeons came in and said like things are going well we're looking after again we'll be back in a while and so me and Graham still just sat there in pure silence couldn't speak nothing um and at about half four that neurosurgeon and another one came in and they came in looking real serious and we were like oh my god oh god and he sat down and he said um I'm trying to think of his name I can't actually oh god that's gone as well it's terrible I know his name um but he sat down and he said I've preserved April's life for now so we were like, that was a big, you know, we're like, oh, but that for now part, we didn't like that so much, you know, you know, we didn't know what's safe not. So we kind of just ran through things at us um, and then told us that we, he, we could see her and it, shortly she was in recovery and they were bringing her to up to ICU shortly. So he told us that he stopped the bleed and he took out her bone flap, which... <laughs> We didn't have a clue how huge that was. So he took out a part of our skull um, and he told us like to prepare for what we were going to see when we went into it and everything. So we went in, 
shortly after when she came back and you now she was completely bandaged up so we couldn't see anything she was on ventilation you know so she's not awake or anything and uh we couldn't see anything um then you're not allowed to stay overnight in ICU parents aren't so you do have to leave even though it's five o'clock in the morning and you're going to be allowed back in at half seven you have to leave so they let us sit there for about half an hour and then told us to come back at half seven so we just we got in a taxi we went home we did we both got into our bed and said nothing but fell asleep we did fall asleep and we were asleep for probably an hour and my mom was outside with coffee ready to bring us back in because she had taken our car home for us Mm. um so we went over and she's still obviously incubated and they changed her bandage and the girl said like I'm going to change it again shortly so I just want just to prepare it's a big scar around her head and everything and she said there was a lot of blood as well and I was laughing and I said I actually don't know if there is a lot of blood her her hair is dyed red because I dyed her hair red for Halloween and I thought it was a wash in wash out and it was permanent so her hair was still fiery red my seven-year-old so probably should have rang child protection or something oh my god and then the nurse was laughing and everything and she was saying oh my god I thought it was blood <laughs> and she um, anyway we were there for a while and it's once you have a nurse there chatting to you and everything they do make you feel a lot more comfortable no matter how bad the situation is and obviously we knew how bad it was but they they chat you and they calm you down. They, they, it's not even their job, but they, they make it a part of their job. Um, they're so good. But she changed the dressing and we seen the scar and it was huge. It was literally from the middle of her forehead down to the back of like the crown of her head and then around to her ear. And there was no skull there. So they were after taking the skull out and putting it in a freezer in um, in a different hospital. I can't oh remember what God. hospital, but it was just, the whole thing was insane. And it was a weekend. Sorry, I didn't tell you this. It was on Friday the 13th. Again? Yes. Yeah, yeah Friday the 13th, 2019, this one was. <laughs> yeah, so that's a crap date. We literally hide at home on that day. <laughs> Graham went on his stags on Friday the 13th and I was like, oh my God, pray oh for gosh. myself. <laughs> um, but anyway, that day, another day that was just a big, huge blur. We had people coming and going again and that little tiny horrible family room was full of pennies bags of pajamas and <laughs> blankets and everything in it that my mom and Graham's mom and everything was after getting and um they were gonna wake her up the next day so they told us to go home and have a sleep and come back the next morning they were gonna start to wean her off um ventilation so they were doing they done that the next day and the, the next few weeks is just like a big blur she's down in a neurosurgery ward this is complete new territory for us we are used to cancer we know cancer this is the brain I don't know anything about the brain so Abel's oncologist was in London <laughs> and stalker Katie emailed him and everything <laughs> We're like, I don't know if you heard about April, but yeah. <laughs> um, and God bless him. He didn't respond to my email and I, and I was paranoid, but he sent 
one of the hematologists from Crumlin over to us okay. to see us. And uh, that was really lovely and comforting. And then as soon as Cormac was back, he came straight over to us, not even on duty. He cycled over to see us. Mm. Um, and we've got a really good relationship. So yeah, that that all happened. <laughs> they confirmed that it was a tumour. Um a very large brain tumour that wasn't outside the brain. It was outside, in the middle, inside, all over, everywhere. Um, and once neuroblastoma is in the brain, you can't get rid of it. So we knew this is the worst, although the last time felt like the worst and the time before that felt like the worst. This this was it. So we didn't know. We didn't really know anything at this point because they hadn't taken the whole tumour out. So she was booked in for a surgery on the following Friday, which was like the 21st of December. And she went up for surgery. I actually walked down to Sky Tours and the girls had a cup of tea ready for me. And she was going to be in there for eight hours, you know, so we, we needed to get out and move around. So I went down and I was sitting in there probably about 15 minutes and the theater in Temple street was ringing me. I was like, no, answered and they said we had to stop the surgery a machine broke during it oh my fucking god like we built ourselves up for that so much and Avel had recovered so well from the previous week and it was just it was awful so anyway we went back to the hospital and we had a weekend to wait then for this hopefully new machine to come in and it was Christmas a couple of days later actually I think it was the 19th yeah it would have been the 19th of December because she was she was operated on that Monday, um, the 21st of December. So it was 21st of December. Obviously Santa's coming in a couple of days and um, we were going on a walk into town to keep ourselves occupied. We were walking by GameStop and we said, well, we buy her a PlayStation. We think we love she'll love PlayStation. We buy her that as a present from us. And um, we went in and we bought her a PlayStation. <laughs> now we didn't, we didn't really think about the fact that she just had a stroke and the left side of her body wasn't working. Yeah. Um, we thought, oh, that will come back. You know, yeah. we didn't think anything of that. So we bought her the PlayStation and everything and we went back and waited for her to come out of theatre and she came out and she was obviously she was very sick <laughs> like she was in ICU and she was on ventilation actually um, Brian O'Driscoll and Amy um, Huberman. Huberman were in ICU <laughs> as well and I'm a big Amy Huberman fan like I adore her she reminds me of one of my friends from school and I just love her so they were in ICU and I was all the nurses were like Brian O'Driscoll's here and I was like my child's just out of surgery I don't care then I seen Amy Huberman the nurse was like I'm gonna call her in here because you like her don't you so she called her in God bless them having to come in in that situation because we were emotional wrecks and they were like do you want to get a selfie (laughs) um because what like this is what I, a question that I, I had like you know and you see them doing great work and you see celebrities and sportsmen mm-hmm. women doing great work in team. but as the parent are you just like it's yeah, do you know what it's I think the charity work and everything they do is amazing it's great mm-hmm. well you're in ICU your child has just came out of brain surgery you know she has terminal cancer you do not want to see any celebrity, you don't care who it is. You know, mm. you don't want a photo up. 
Well, the nurse said to me that day when they were gone, I was like, that was so awkward. Like as much as I loved me, Navy Hooperman, I thought this moment wasn't <laughs> yeah. the, the best uh, time. But she said, it's all photo ops for all celebrities coming into hospital. It's photo ops. They, they're so happy to do the work, mm. but they, they need to be recognized for it. Mm. Now, I have met celebrities in the hospital that I never even knew went to the hospital. That they're the ones that don't need the photo off that don't need anything um that's uh, on christmas morning danny from the script mm. and his sister came around every single bed in temple street he gave everybody who liked the script a ticket to this concert that march um he sat down he chatted to everybody he like he asked what was wrong and he wished us all a happy Christmas. He actually told us about his, his troubles because his mom had passed away recently and there was no cameraman with him. There was, you know, his sister wasn't standing there taking pictures. They were there for the chats, but he wasn't there for, for himself, himself. He was there for everyone else. You know, it was, that was one of the nicest things I think I experienced that Christmas day. There were so many lovely things that Christmas day, actually. What is Christmas day like in the hospital? But is April even awake? So April only came off the ventilation on Christmas Eve mm-hmm. and she was moved back down to her surgical ward on um, Christmas Eve. She was so fragile they were after removing obviously a tumor from her brain she was so so fragile she could barely open her eyes her eyes were black and swollen her face was you know everything was swollen and sore and she was on massive doses of morphine and steroids and everything so um we we had a Christmas tree beside her bed. She was in a room with four other beds and we had a Christmas tree. We had Christmas lights. We had cards everywhere. When I say Santa came, Santa came. Like it was insane. I'd say people were looking, saying, what is going on behind that curtain? She wasn't awake. She wasn't. Um, she woke up for, for the toilet during the night and stuff. Now she obviously couldn't get up and go to the toilet. So she woke up for little things like that. She didn't even notice the things that were there or anything. The next morning she woke up probably about, so Christmas morning, maybe about seven o'clock. And we were so excited in a way, you know, we were trying to make the most of it. Um, and she did actually open every single present she tried. Like she clearly couldn't even see what they were because she was just opening them and putting them to the side. But uh, she went back to sleep then and then she woke back up a couple of hours later and she was a little bit more lively. But the thing, and we always say it, the llama saved Christmas, the booty shaking llama, Santa brought her. <laughs> and we got batteries into that and we pressed it and that was the day. The day he was saved. Um, he was shaking his booty all around the, <laughs> her little table and she was bringing them everywhere we had like a big buggy with a tray on it for her so mm. like it's like a big child buggy and um it had the tray and the llama literally just sat on the tray <laughs> for the whole day dancing and family came to see us and um there was carolers in and like i said danny from the script was there the 
the Garda came in because um, they do the Little Blue Heroes and everything. So they were very involved at Temple Street and they came in and they, they were so lovely again. I know the guard to use a few photo ops, but they didn't that morning. You know, it was so nice. Um, it was actually lovely chatting to them and everything. And they gave us all little Christmas presents and stuff. And it was it was really special. Um, even when the nurses came in and gave all the mums and dads like little Christmas presents. Um, I got a hot water bottle and flowers um, mm. from Mad Flowers. Mad Flowers donates flowers to the hospital for parents at Christmas. So they gave us some flowers. Um, you're not I didn't actually, know that. Yeah, you're not actually allowed to have flowers in the hospital. Mm. So they had to go home, but mm. they were still beautiful. And it was such a nice um, gesture. And the canteen is open for Christmas dinner. And you do actually pay for lunch in the canteen and hospital but it was free the Christmas dinner for families so we went down and we had Christmas dinner now April didn't she couldn't eat she actually wasn't allowed to eat her throat um, from surgery and everything can like you are so because you've lived it yeah <laughs> you've lived it and it's like your story you know it you know it off by heart you probably told it to people in your company a million times I actually, you know, I don't tell people about it, but I tell, I, I tell myself it all the time. I could lie in bed and go over it all in my head every night. I don't do it every night, but I could. <laughs> but I don't talk to people about it. You're the first person who I've actually ever sat down and told, start to finish with. Even my counsellor, I don't do that with. <laughs> um, yeah. It's so fucking sad. It's so sad. And I know it's not because April's here. Jesus Christ, walking into that canteen and having your Christmas dinner, but being surrounded by others who are in the exact same situation yeah. as you. Yeah. As an outsider looking in. It's very hard. Yeah. But like I said, you, you've lived it. You know it. It's your truth. It's your story. And that's why you're sitting there in front of me and being the strongest person I know. Because I've met strong people, but like I'm literally, okay. Let's go. Oh, I'm sorry for making no, you cry. It's, <laughs> it's just that image. I know. And I actually have a picture of us all sitting down you. there. Yeah. I remember Graham putting it up on Instagram that day and I was like, oh God. You know, and there's, I, we actually, it was just me and Graham that had our dinner. April Cundy and his family had all, it was him, his family who was there with us. And I think my brother and one of Graham's friends, because my family were coming up later, you know, you have to give times to people mm. to come up at. And they were all gone home to have their dinner. So it was literally just me and Graham sitting there and building a Christmas dinner. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the picture, the dinners are in front of the two of us. Everyone else is just there with like cans of Coke in their hands. <laughs> like, um, but it was an experience to have. Christmas and hospital not something I'd want to do again but it's made lovely for, for if you have to be there do you know that was a only, it was our only time in hospital but the two years previous we nearly had to stay in hospital for Christmas mm. we got out on the Christmas Eve or that was three years previous and um, the whole lead up to Christmas in hospital they really do make sure that you're happy and you're comfortable and everybody is somewhat able to smile or enjoy themselves at some point um but yeah we were two days post-surgery then on Christmas day it was difficult we still I don't think we still we'd registered things yet um 
it wasn't until after the new year because everybody's on their holidays and you know the full staff aren't in and you don't have um all the physios and the OTs there and everything so you're not getting the the full medical care you'd get in a normal time which is understandable I wouldn't you know I I wouldn't give out to them for going home for Christmas Mm -hmm. (laughs) but when everybody came back I think it was like the third of January then we kind of start realizing that this is kind of our life now like April's life has changed dramatically she she doesn't have the use of her right arm or leg and she's not going to um she can't move her fingers and she can't move her toes and she couldn't walk or anything then like it obviously lots of physio and everything we were doing lots of stuff and um that was that was all really difficult we were we were in hospital for 11 weeks or nine weeks we were in hospital for nine weeks that time and we made so many friends which was actually really lovely we were we never stayed in a ward with other people until this time and we Ava made like a best friend Anthony Iannucci you might have seen him on the toy show uh, yeah. last year mm. um, Anthony is, was in the bed beside us and I remember the night that you came in and the screaming and the shouting and the chorus and I was like oh my god and then April started talking and then he heard her screaming and shouting of course and I was like oh no these two are going to be a disaster <laughs> and they were hilarious and his mum um, me and even Graham like we were just all it was just actually really nice we all got on so well the nurses and everything everybody on that ward was a sweetheart um, and we couldn't have gotten through it so well without them all um, like to be friends like as friends like I don't mean even medically I mean just to have them to chat to the play therapist like she's like my best friend I love her <laughs> she's got to be listening to this she's going to be like Katie you are so weird <laughs> But yeah, we did, April spent so nine weeks doing lots of physio. Um, we were trying to see what we can do next. So sorry, I was trying to avoid saying it to this part. So it was prolonging everything. Um, April's oncologist and her nurse, her clinical nurse specialist, were coming over and seeing us randomly. They came over to see us on Christmas Eve to say Happy Christmas. Not talk medical stuff nothing they literally came over they drove over themselves one of them lives in Carlo and they just came over to say happy Christmas and to give us a hug and uh, yeah so we, we that's so I don't know magical I don't know I don't know what some people are so good so so good like they have their own kids to go home to you know they finished work and they came to a different hospital the other side of the sea at Christmas, on Christmas Eve, to, to see us. Like, it was just, uh, I start crying and everything. <laughs> um, they are so lovely. April's oncologist was laughing and he was saying, I'm just trying to avoid going home to uh, the in-laws. <laughs> but I was like, you're just being really nice and came over to say happy Christmas. <laughs> um, but we had to have the chat then um, after Christmas. So it was what? what's ahead of us so at this point April is 100% terminally ill what can we do to make life easier or better for whatever um so 
her oncologist brought us into the tiniest little coffee room because the only thing, every room in Temple Street is really, really tiny. <laughs> so it was like a little laneway room. And we were sitting in there and he said, like, he asked us first. He didn't say anything about, he was like, what do you want to do? He knows that we're so used to this life and we're so knowledgeable about it all. Well, I wouldn't even say I'm that knowledgeable, but I kind of know what steps you can take. Um, and he asked us and we were just like, we're just so fed up for her. It's just not fair. Um all of her independence is now gone do you know everything has changed everything is different now what do you think we should do what can we do and if we do it are we doing her any favours like should we just do nothing instead Um, we didn't want to do anything selfishly for us we didn't want to pour her through treatments to make us feel better and that's not me saying that anybody else, any other parents that do lots of uh, surgeries or, or not even surgeries, treatments or whatever for their kids is selfish. It's everybody is very different in these ways. At this point, April had been through so much, so, so much. And it just, it wouldn't have been fair for us to throw her into another deep end. So we, we asked and um, they told us, we could do what we'd done before, which was the temazolamide, the oral chemotherapy, and we could do radiotherapy to our whole brain. Um, then they said there's obviously trials for this, that, and what have you all around the world if you want to look at them. And we all know that they were all there. That wasn't, they weren't, and they still, I don't think, would be an option for us. There's just... There's too much involved in it for it to put April through at this point. Her whole life has been cancer now nearly, you know, so we just wouldn't do it. So we chose the temazolamide um, and the radiotherapy. So that was fine. Then they said, we have to have a meeting now with, you've got two care teams. You There's Temple Street now and there's Crumlin. So you've got neurosurgeon, you know, the, these paediatric surgeons and everything and now you and oncology so we had to have a meeting with everybody and I remember gearing ourselves up for this and we went over to a boardroom I wasn't expecting this many people either was great we walked in so April's oncologist her oncology nurse her physio her OT their the, the doctor of their department her two neurosurgeons um Everybody went through and introduced themselves because everybody at the table didn't know each other. So they started with me and Graham, I'm Katie, I'm Abel's mom. And, you know, and it went around and it got past the Temple Street staff and I got to this one woman and she said, I'm from Laura Lynn, I'm Abel's palliative care doctor. And I was like, who the F are you? You know, me and Graham were like, who's this? Who brought her here? You know, we didn't palliative care has been spoke about to us before and we never had to meet them or anything but the fact that we were meeting them we didn't want to this was horrible for us um and then the next person I, I can't remember but anybody after her like it all just got worse but you know so everybody said their piece and then it was our turn to ask questions that threw us off so much. I don't even know what questions we asked after that because we were so thrown um, 
we actually, when the meeting finished, we went outside and cried to Cormac being like, why was she there? And you know, he, he can explain to us in his way why, and we understand, like we understand, we know, we just need someone to tell us. Um, and then uh, after that, yeah, like, <laughs> it goes into spirals now. Like we were, we were in hospital for another few weeks and we weren't going to be let home because our house isn't wheelchair friendly and April is now in a wheelchair and, you know, she can't use stairs. She can't have steps up to her house and our house is the most wheelchair unfriendly house <laughs> you would ever see. We have two giant steps. For our, no, not two giant steps to our front door, two steps to our front door. Um, we have a step into our sitting room. We have steep stairs. Um, we have a step up into the bathroom. <laughs> mm. We have giant steps in the back garden. Like it was just a disaster. And they, so they weren't letting us go home unless we put a bed in our sitting room. So OT is telling us we have to put a bed in our sitting room. Her oncology team are saying, do not put a bed in the sitting room. Because if you put a bed in the sitting room, you're going to be left with that. They're not going to help you, you know, do anything else. They're not going to get you a stair lift or anything. So anyway, they, Ava was making progress with like her walking and climbing steps and stuff. So she might not have been able to walk down steps, but she was able to climb up like tree in her physio sessions. So we were on a home like a, a home day week we used to get a few hours out and she was able to walk up the stairs and then bump down them so we ran back into hospital mm. and we're like she can walk up and she can bump down and we'll be beside her the whole time mm. can we go home and they said yeah <laughs> um so they didn't let us out there and then so they just needed to test everything and um just put everything in place for us going home and the right wheelchair for her at home and all that so in that time, so that week she started her brain radiotherapy. Um, we did not know the side effects until we went in and had the meeting with the doctor on that first day in St. Luke's. Um, she'd been through radiotherapy twice before, so we knew those ones for those areas. But this one, they were radiating her whole brain. And one of the first side effects that she said was that she would have... Um, memory loss and she wouldn't be able to learn new things that for us we were like she won't be able to learn new things like that that's not good quality of life that's what we want for us for we want to do her justice by giving her enjoyable things so we actually we left and we said we're not doing radiotherapy we just we didn't want to damage her anymore you know so we left and we went back to temple street and we went up to the music room the music therapy room and she was playing songs and banging the drums and everything and the her her oncologist rang me and he chatted to me and then said you and Graham come over so we went over and we had a chat about it all and he said listen like we we are the first people to know that they're going to tell you worst case scenario and everything but the way we were told that it was like this is going to happen so we were petrified and karma kind of reassured us and said listen this is what i think you should do so let's do that so you were going to have the yeah you had to, he was telling you you have to have this radio too not have to not, not have to. to no it's okay. up to us but it would um it would do her well you know so um 
we went ahead and we done it. And again, she was great. She was knackered. Yeah, she was knackered. She was literally after having brain surgery a few weeks before that. Now she's getting, you know, it was it was a tough time. But by the end of the first week of it, because she had three weeks of it again, and um, by the end of the first week, they let us go home, which was amazing. The only thing is then at this point is that we don't have a wheelchair car. Oh, we don't have a wheelchair car, but the wheelchair she had at the time could fold mm. so it did fit in our boot but we weren't allowed to drive where out of the wheelchair so for her safety she had to be sitting in a wheelchair and in a wheelchair car so um Aileen's Pink Tie that charity yeah. before um they organized a taxi every day to bring us to and from St. Luke's where we're in the wheelchair so that was grand um but after that, then it was like, what are we going to do? Or, no, sorry, we could drive. We could drive her around because we got a car seat that was approved by the hospital. So it was actually just one from Smith's that we bought and it was approved. And that was great. The wheelchair folded up. Great. But that wasn't her wheelchair. Her wheelchair was in the making or whatever. Um, mm. So her wheelchair arrived at the beginning of COVID and because she doesn't have any power in her left arm, she needed a right hand drive, which means the wheelchair doesn't fold. <laughs> so in the end, we broke the boot on the car in order to fit the wheelchair into the car. <laughs> Travelling is a disaster. It is a disaster. The car is not comfortable for any of us. Where we could have a wheel sitting beside us at one point because we have to take parts of it off to fit it in. And anyway, we we get by. <laughs> um, but life was very different. We then got a stair lift put in because walking up and down the stairs, although able can do it. Now she she's also a child that's on chemotherapy and that needs. You know, she needs support for things. Although she can do things, it doesn't necessarily mean that she should do them. Um, she needs to preserve energy, you know. So she she got a stair lift. Then she got a bath lift. Um, our bathroom needed to be done. <laughs> From the second we moved into it, we were like, this is awful. We need to get this done. Ava gave us that reason to actually get it done. So it, it, they gave us a bath lift and it was grand, like it worked, but it was a pain for her. And it, it, they're made to make the carer's life easier so that you're not hurting your back lifting up and down and everything like that. So the concept of them is great, but they're just a pain. Everything about these big gadgets is a pain. So we then got our bathroom done later on last year with our wedding money, you know, um, to get her bathroom done and have a, so we have a walk-in shower for her and, and a bath so she can have her choices but um, yeah just adapting to that life was very difficult everything had to change everything um, the amount of new things we had to buy and figure out and yeah just even clothes something so simple as clothes getting up her arm and over her head and then onto the other arm you can't just I can't just say to her throw t-shirts on you you know you can't just say get changed there real quick or try your pajamas on and mm. she can't put toothpaste on a toothbrush you know all these little things she needs constant help with um now she's brilliant and she will find a way to do things if I'm not there to do them for her or Graham or myself or Graham right there too where she will find a way she's great she's brilliant and she's you know she can find her way around is she stubborn yes <laughs> 
yes, yes. <laughs> um, she is very stubborn and if I was to say like you can't do that, she'll do it. We were in we were in Galway last week and we were in a park and it lived it had a big sign, no wheelchair access and no buggy access. And April hopped out of her wheelchair and ran across the bridge and started climbing up these steps and then onto a hill and everybody that was with us, we were all like, Oh my god, stop. So I ran after her. They went around the other side of the hill trying to find her. We had her in the end and she was grand, but you can't tell her no. You know, she she knows if, if she could do something, she can do it. And if she can, she can. She's she's brilliant like that. Right. Tell me about the wedding. The wedding? Oh, we were meant to get married in New York last May. <laughs> when April had the stroke originally, the wedding obviously was the last thing in our mind. We didn't, we weren't thinking about it. Um, we had both start working more Um before pre-stroke um, to pay for the wedding and we paid off so much of it and had it all organised everything although I didn't have a dress or anything <laughs> I didn't even look at dresses at that point but um, we then after the stroke we said we're not going to be able to bring it to New York and actually April's doctor the first thing he said when he came over to Crumlin over to Temple Street sorry was don't cancel your wedding We'll get you to New York, you know. He, I didn't even, I didn't even say anything to him. He just, he had to get that in there. Let us know that we could still go. Um, and it, actually, the staff in Temple Street, it was real. You know, they were like, "We'll have April walking up the aisle. She'll walk you up the aisle in New York, and what have you." And um, yeah, we were. You know, it was something to look forward to for us. Um to get us through a hard time, you know, like, although it's the last thing that, you know, it doesn't matter if it happens or not, but it's something to look forward to. So we were only home from hospital like a couple of weeks and COVID actually, there was a case of COVID in the matter when we were still in Temple Street. And I remember April and Anthony, the carry on of them, thinking that there was COVID in the air coming from <laughs> from the matter. And um, it was all laughs then at mm. the beginning and then we got home and we were home a couple of weeks and everything started getting more serious <laughs> and then lockdown happened and then we were like should we cancel our wedding and then we, we didn't want to you know we were mm. like no like we grand nobody predicted COVID was going to be what COVID mm. was so we like so we didn't we were grand um none of our suppliers even were getting in touch with us or anything and everything was fine and then the second when the I think the second time lockdown was extended we were like we should probably get in touch with them so we changed the date we moved it forward a month <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking think we were getting to New York by the June and our um the woman our ceremonist what, what? yeah 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 <laughs> she said I was chatting to her and she said oh listen New York is grand I was in the park the other day like we were getting married in Central Park like in a bandstand and she was like I was in the park the other day and it was grand people are walking around and everyone's just enjoying the sun and blah 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 and then on the news like I was seeing pop-up hospitals in the in Central Park I was like what is she talking about so anyway we just bit the bullet in the end and said right we'll cancel we'll get married when we get married it doesn't matter um, so we cancelled it we did immediately start looking everywhere else we obviously lost money on our New York wedding so we were like we're on a budget we emailed all these places and 
wow Irish weddings are so expensive we hadn't looked at an Irish wedding before mm. book in New York we didn't go and view anywhere or anything so we didn't actually realize how expensive they were um and then we came across the station house on Google just came across it and we said we'll go and look at that place so we'd been emailing them for a while and the girl had been sending me like a virtual tour of the place because we were still in lockdown and we didn't even know what dates we were going for we were just looking at places so when you were allowed to leave your county at that point, um, we said, right, we'll go down to me and we'll look at there. So we've organized with the girl and we went down and before we even drove in, we got to the gates and like it looked beautiful in front of us. But the song that Graham proposed to me, like the song that was playing when Graham proposed to me mm. was playing on the radio in the car. So we're like, ah, oh, this is it. Yeah, like before yeah. we even got mm. in, this is it. So anyway, we went in, we fell in love with the place. It was absolutely amazing. And we could afford it and everything was great. So the lead up. So we booked it six weeks before the wedding is when we booked it. And um, my dress didn't fit me. <laughs> I was like, my COVID weight was like way over what it should have been. Uh, everything was just a bit like, oh God. And then in the middle of, it was actually, do you know, funny enough, it was this day last year, Leo Radcar said um, that weddings couldn't go ahead at the 45 people capacity mm. until maybe a date in August. So he ex- had extended whatever restrictions were in place mm. for another three weeks. And we were like, Fuck. we actually were having our tasting our menu tasting that night in the hotel and I rang and I cancelled and I cried and uh Tracy Lally knocked on the door to do my trial makeup I was going to wear down for my menu tasting I sent her home because I was standing at the door bawling (laughs) and then I went upstairs and I said to Graham come on we just go for the menu tasting at the end of the day we're going to get married you know come on let's go so we went and I rang them and I was like we're actually on the M50 we'll be there in 45 minutes (laughs) put our table back in and uh it was and it, I'm going to say an anxious few weeks. It wasn't that bad. We were just like, whatever happens, happens. If we have to reschedule again, we'll have to reschedule. Like, come here. There's nothing you can do this day and age. It came to it and it was amazing. It was just like, there was no, we didn't really need to do much planning. Everything was there. We had bought loads of little bits for New York, like just like little props and stuff. So we had like a little box of props and things that we were going to bring to New York and off we went down and it was just perfect like yeah the morning of it I was very stressed out it was lashing rain <laughs> lashing rain but it stopped at about 12 o'clock and it was 27 degrees so then I was sweating I had no makeup left on my face <laughs> but we had 45 people there and so it was allowed 50 people, including staff. So there was five staff and 45 of us. And it was just perfect. We had to obviously chop and change our numbers. That was the most difficult part. We spread it, we spread it over two days. So we had 45 the first day, 45 the second day. So the first day was just our family. And like, we got to have like one, or two, I think we got two best friends each. And uh, the second day was all of our friends just a party we were just having like you know barbecue and we cut the cake with them as well and that sort of thing (laughs) but uh yeah it was amazing and Ava wore a dress (laughs) which she doesn't do so yeah that was it only lasted until about five o'clock and then she put on (laughs) pajamas but she had a great day and yeah 
I wouldn't change any of it. I, would, I, I don't even care that we didn't get married in New York anymore. <laughs> so tell me, Katie, before I let you go, where does April stand today? So when April had stroke, she was given three years. Now she was given three years on her, her first relapse as well. Um, but the chemo that she was taking now is prolonging her life. There is still cancer in her head. Um, a very small bit, but she's terminally ill and we were given three years then. So how long, you know, how long is a piece of string? Piece of string. You just don't know. Um, carpe diem, as they say, season day. Like you just, you don't know. I'm very, I'm very much a get up and enjoy yourself. Now come here, we lie in bed most days, <laughs> these days. Um, but just be grateful for things and enjoy your life. That's just the, my way of kind of seeing things um, because we don't know. We don't know when it will happen, how it will happen, why it will happen. You know, you just don't know. So yeah, each day as it comes, minute by minute, nearly. <laughs> making memories. Yes, making memories and enjoying ourselves. And it really is the little things, like the little things like a kiss on the cheek and a movie on the couch you know it really is and that's what we live for these days and she's a happy child yes she's a very happy child mm, she is you can see that through your instagram you Aww. know usually i'd finish with some words and i actually just don't have had to say to you i just wish i, I wish life was different i know I know. And I wish that for so many people too. You know, there's so many people that go through shit. I have so many parents who have been in my shoes as well. And I I always say it's them too. Like, I wish things were different for you. And I wish this wasn't you, but I don't wish it upon anybody else. You know, I wish it wasn't me, but you can't, we can't change that. Yeah. Just have to go with the, go with the flow. And on that note, Katie, we leave it there. Okay. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.